You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from John. His name was uh, sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning him. He cries out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Hitting the wall is a common phenomenon that athletes especially experience and those who compete in high endurance type events like cycling, marathon running, they speak of hitting the wall. It's been defined as a sudden fatigue that hits you. Not only a sudden fatigue, but a loss of energy due to the loss of glycogen in your liver and muscles. But yet you have to work through that in order to compete and be a successful athlete. Now, you may have a hard time physically relating to that. I don't know if any of you are competing in that realm. But have you ever felt spiritually like you've hit the wall? Uh, Will you feel fatigued spiritually, discouraged spiritually? Well, I think we can all sort of say, yeah, I I know, been there, done that. What, What is the remedy? What is the response that we should have? When in the Christian life, you will go through times where you experience spiritually hitting the wall, spiritually weak, discouraged, and maybe full of questions. Well, I want you to turn to John chapter 1, because vital to our spiritual health in Christ is keeping before us the fullness of Christ. And and so in John chapter 1, you have the Gospel of John begins in verses 1 through 18 uh, with this prologue. And this prologue highlights the person and work of Christ. 
And although we often associate this maybe with Advent, you know, Christ's birth, origin, things like that, it's a very relevant text because we all need to think about why is the fullness of Christ such an important teaching? Not, not just an important doctrine, but why is it a very practical and relevant teaching uh, when we go through the Christian life? And so what we're going to do is look at two aspects in this prologue. Keep in mind that the prologue is critical to the point of the Gospel of John. So the Gospel of John is, is one of the only Gospels that actually states its purpose for us. So if you were to go to John chapter 20, verse 31, John says, here's the reason I'm writing all of this. It's that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that there is life in him. So this prologue is an introduction, but the backbone of supporting that thesis. But we're going to look at the fullness of Christ from two aspects this morning. One is the fullness of Christ displayed. What does that look like to see the fullness of Christ displayed? And the second aspect we'll look at is the fullness of Christ received. What, what difference should that fullness displayed now make in my everyday life as a follower of Jesus Christ? So let's take a look at the first aspect here, the fullness of Christ displayed. And in particular, you see in verses 1 through 4, this is going to be accentuated for us in a number of different ways. So you notice right away, verse 1, in the beginning, that you don't have to be a Hebrew scholar or be Jewish to realize if I said to you, in the beginning, where do your thoughts almost immediately go in the Bible? Genesis 1.1. 1, 1. So there, there's a, a very important aspect here. If you're going to talk about the fullness of Christ being displayed, you're going to go back to the pre-existence of Christ and his continuing his existence. So notice John, the Apostle John, wants us to understand not only has Christ existed from eternity past, but he continues to exist today, right now as we speak. So in that opening verse, we take us back to the very beginning. From eternity past, you have the Father, the Son, and the Spirit existing in perfect fellowship and communion together. But yet you notice as you read verses 1 and 2, it says, in the beginning was the Word. And we know the Word here is going to refer specifically to Christ. By the time you get to verse 14, John tells you directly the Word became flesh. So in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Now, very interesting. You see that Jesus, the Son, is presented and portrayed as equal to the Father. And yet, he is distinct in person from the Father. So the, the doctrine of the Trinity, as we hopefully understand it, is, is not that there's one God and he sort of has three different faces and they show us differently, like a heresy called modalism. But, but we're saying, no, there's three distinct persons and yet one God. And so as John tells us of the pre-existence of Jesus Christ, he says he's equal to God the Father. There's no difference in nature or ontology, but yet he is 
distinct from the Father because we correctly speak of it's Jesus who died for our sins. But then going a little further, you notice verses 3 and 4, he moves us now into the realm of creation, already triggered by verse 1 that said, in the beginning. But in verses 3 and 4, it says, through him, all things are made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. John speaks of the role that even the Son and the Spirit played in creation. And reminding us that the activity of creation, that Jesus Christ was not only actively involved in that, but just like the Father, Jesus has life in himself. Uh, theologians refer to this as the aseity of God. So if we're claiming that they are three equal in nature, then whatever attribute one has, they all must equally have to 100%. It's not that it gets divided up into 33 and a third percent for each of them. They have it to 100%. And so when we speak of Christ here, he's saying Christ has life in himself. None of us can claim that. We are the byproduct of a biological design and process. We, we don't have life in and of ourselves. But the Father, the Son, and the Spirit do. All underlining this first thought of what does it mean to speak of the fullness of Christ being displayed in the Trinity, displayed in the process of creation. But as you think about this, John's making a connection that just as miraculous as the physical creation is, that there was nothing and then God spoke and it came into being, the same is equally true when it comes to our spiritual new birth in Christ, that that is as miraculous as creation. And we should connect that as we marvel living in a place where we see so many things about creation that are beautiful, a constant reminder, there's no, nothing less miraculous of you sitting here saying, well, I know Christ as my Lord and Savior because he sought me out. That's a miracle. Go down to verse 9, and in this thought of the fullness of Christ displayed, John develops this further. You notice in verse 9, he writes, the true light gives light to every man who is coming into the world. There's a distinctiveness there about Jesus Christ. In other words, as John refers to the ministry, as we'll see, of John the Baptist, and we can think of other prophets who came before John the Baptist announcing the promised Messiah, that Jesus Christ stands distinct from all previous prophets or forerunners. He is the true light. He is the ultimate light. Go back to thinking about the book of Deuteronomy when God tells Moses, there's going to be one who comes after you. He, he will be the prophet. And when he speaks, you must listen to him. Already there you have the, the, the sketchy outline, the shadow of what will be true of Jesus Christ. Not just his pre-existence, his continuous existence, but his uniqueness. So notice if we're, we're tracking with that correctly, 
we understand in Christianity, we're not looking for further revelations. We're, we're not awaiting some new updated prophet to come who can clarify what Jesus left us with. Uh, that is often the seedbed of many heresies, other religions that we can look at who claim prophets coming after the time of Christ. Uh, this sort of closes that door and says, Jesus Christ is the one true light. But then notice verse 14. There it says, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And you may have heard this and read this and think, wait a minute, that sounds very different than what we read in Exodus this morning in our meditation. That the tent of meeting was a place where people met God, but yet God's invisible, you can't see him. And then this is saying, we have seen God. How, how is that possible? Well, you notice here that in Jesus Christ, we have one who first came and dwelled among us. Um, literally, you could render that phrase, dwell. He, he pitched his tent among us. Uh, I'm not a big fan of the message, but I do like the way that uh, Eugene Peterson puts this verse. He says, he, he came and he, he, he lived in our neighborhood. He, he became exactly like us, but yet remained without sin. So that he would be able to identify and die in our place. So he came and literally tabernacled, pitched his tent among us. As Moses said, we're going to set up this tent where we will meet with God. He will meet with us. Now we have God condescending in the Son, Jesus Christ, to come face to face and to live among us. But there's another phrase that's very important. At the end of that verse, it says, He came from the Father full of grace and truth. What does it mean to say Jesus came full of grace and truth? A full is an easy one, complete. Not, nothing was lacking, nothing could be added to make him the picture of grace and truth. But that phrase grace and truth parallels descriptions of God in the Old Testament that speak of God's said his his steadfast loving kindness and mercy his covenant faithfulness so in other words what John is saying here is you, you want to know what God looks like who God is you need look no further than the person and work of Jesus Christ he reveals to us God, who is full of grace and truth. Look with me for a moment at Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1 and verses 1 through 3. And the reality of seeing Jesus Christ as the fullness of God displayed is, is not only an encouragement to us, uh, but also a guard against being susceptible to false teaching. But in Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 3, the writer of Hebrews echoes the same assurance uh, that in Christ we have the complete picture of grace and truth. Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 3, as you may be aware of, the book of Hebrews is written to uh, struggling believers. Uh, in other words, those who have hit the wall spiritually, kind of questioning, 
Is, is this the truth? Uh, should we go back and go back to Judaism, go back to other teaching? But listen to what Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 has to say. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And notice how careful the writer of Hebrews is to say he's, he's the exact representation. That phrase comes from the word that we get the term prototype. The prototype is that, that perfect model that everything else is modeled after that in Jesus Christ, we have the prototype of who God is, what God is. So we have, based on the opening prologue in John, this vivid description of the fullness of God that has been displayed through Jesus Christ. But in order to grasp that, go back to John chapter 1, and let me highlight a few things in verses 6 through 9, 10 and 11, and verse 15. Because as great as that is, the fullness of Christ displayed, you have to read that in the reality of his rejection. That, that how could this be so clear and yet so adamantly rejected by most? So look at me at verses 6 through 9. You have a quick overview of the teaching of John the Baptist. So the Apostle John is the writer of the Gospel of John, but he's referencing now the ministry of John the Baptist. Anyone remember what, what did happen to John the Baptist? He went to prison, didn't he? Yeah, he went to prison and beheaded. then beheaded. beheaded. So here's this one. You talk about the message of and person of Christ being rejected. Here's this reminder. Here's this one who came as the forerunner. He is executed by Herod. A tremendous cost and a vivid picture of if they did this to his forerunner, why would we be surprised what happens to the messenger when he actually comes? But notice verses 10 and 11. Given the background that we've just said, where God displays his fullness through Christ. Speaking of Christ, it says, He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. What do you think of when you think of this phrase, he, he came to his own? I think immediately you might think, all right, well, he, he was Jewish, and he came to the nation of Israel, and, and they rejected him. That, that is definitely true. He, he came as man, and mankind rejected him. They did not esteem him, as Isaiah says. But have you ever stopped to consider as well as that, he came to the very world that he breathed into existence, and that very world said, talk to the hand. We don't, we don't want you. 
not only do we not want you, we will not tolerate you. And in fact, we think the solution is that we execute you. What, what a dramatic reversal here from the fullness of God coming. And think about all the centuries that the, the religious leaders in Israel went through the Old Testament, pointing people and saying, we're, we're looking for the Messiah. And then he comes. And as we'll say early in Peter's sermon in Acts, he'll say, well, what did you do when this promised one finally came? And Peter will say, you know what you did? You greeted him by crucifying him, by rejecting him. He came unto his own, and his own did not recognize him. They did not acknowledge him. They did not welcome him, embrace him into their hearts and minds. But then notice verse 15 as well. Um, the reason here has nothing to do with lack of clarity, but the deep sinfulness in our hearts. Verse 15, it says, John testified concerning him. He cries out saying, this was he of whom I said, he comes after me, has surpassed me because he was before me. As hard as it is for us to swallow, he was rejected. This puts it right out there. You can't blame that on lack of clarity or that there wasn't enough evidence to somehow show people that he was the Messiah. It was never an issue of lack of evidence, never an issue of lack of clarity among the previous messengers and John the Baptist, but it all comes back to what is in man's heart. An inborn, ingrained repulsion toward God. I love how John Calvin says the, the heart is a factory of idols. We're, we're just wired that way because of sin. And only Christ can change that. So we've seen a good glimpse here in the prologue of the fullness of Christ displayed. But the prologue doesn't end there. There's a second aspect that John wants us to keep before us. If you're going to believe that Jesus is the Christ and that there's life in him, even when you hit the wall. So the second aspect he brings up here is the fullness of Christ received. So it's, it's not just an important doctrine, but now how does that doctrine relate to your life, my life in Christ? Well, look at John 1, verses 12 and 13. If something's received, it means it's applied. It becomes a part of us. And by God's grace and the work of the Holy Spirit, this fullness of Christ is to be received and continually be evident in our lives. So you notice in verses 12 and 13, it's received by faith. It is a work of God by which we respond and can see the truthfulness of what we're reading here. Notice verse 12 says, Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born of not of natural descent or human decision or a human's will, but born of God. Notice how in that he kind of bookends his thought. It's nothing you did. You, you can't take credit for this. It's not that you were smarter than the audience that heard John the Baptist. It's just an evidence of the process of God by which he drew you, 
changed your heart and your mind that you did respond in conscious, deliberate faith and believed this message. We are now children of God. We are born of God. Clearly removing it, as he says here, wasn't an act of human will, was an act of a husband's will. It's a divine, miraculous act. I love the story of George Whitfield, a very famous evangelist, uh, who in his sermons often would simply tell people, you need to be born again. Uh, and at one occasion, he was pulled aside and asked, why do you keep telling people and saying to them, you need to be born again? And Whitfield, characteristic of his very buoyant personality, simply said, because you must be born again. Notice a little bit later in John, you have Jesus talking to Nicodemus. Nicodemus, one of the religious teachers, and he says to him, Nicodemus, you, you've got to be born again. And that's exactly what he's referring to here. How does this fullness of Christ impact your life? Well, it starts at conversion. When we personally, by faith, become a child of God. But then notice in John 1, verse 18, that initial fullness should continue to permeate our lives because it should lead to a growing knowledge of God. So in verse 18, John says, No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Now we talked about the fullness of Christ displayed. Verse 18, John says, If you know Christ then you do know God. You know the one and only. And the word known here is a word that we often maybe apply to sermons when we think of a, a sermon where it takes the passage and then sort of lays it open for us and, and we can see what it teaches. It, it's the root word for the term exegete, to, to lay open and explain. So how do we know who God is? He is explained to us through Jesus Christ and the Word of God. So now, if you have experienced the fullness of Christ, one of the ways you know that's received and active in your life is, are you growing in your knowledge of God? Are, are you learning more and more spiritual truth? And how is it making a difference as you go through your workday? How does it impact decisions you need to make? How does it impact relationships that you have to work through with coworkers, family members, maybe even the people you're sitting next to in church? So notice that the fullness of Christ received begins by faith. And now we're children of God. We have a new position, new standing in Christ. But it should lead to a growing knowledge of God. Later on in the Gospel of John, Jesus himself will gather his disciples together in the upper room and say to them that eternal life is that you know God. That, that you know him not just theoretically, but, but you know him personally. And just sort of think, how is that possible that we as finite creatures can have an increasing Never exhaustive, the sight of heaven, but an increasing knowledge of God. It's only through the vehicle 
and person and work of Jesus Christ. So, for example, we know that there's infrared, ultraviolet rays that you cannot see with the human eye. Yet, through technology and different devices, is it possible for us to see ultraviolet? Yes. But we can only do that because of a, a medium, an agent that makes that possible. Well, John's reminding us, how can you say you know Christ, that you know God personally through Jesus Christ? And then notice verses 16 and 17. As the fullness of Christ is received, it says that it should be followed one blessing after another. Notice it says, from the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Very interesting phrase that if you have received this fullness of Christ through salvation, and you have, if your salvation is genuine, then you sort of move from one blessing to another, from grace to grace. Some translations have from one gracious gift to another. And notice the emphasis here is we all. So you can kind of look around you and, and assuming all of us are believers in Christ, each person's name works there. We've all received this in Christ. There's not like a spiritual elite in the body and they've gotten this, but we haven't. But this is a reality, the fullness of Christ. Verse 17 just reminds us that even the law, when you think of the Old Testament, the standard of what righteousness should look like, even that was a gracious gift from God. It was intended to show us our unworthiness and to lead us to Christ. So in a sense, even going from Moses to Christ is a picture of we're moving from one gracious gift to the ultimate gracious gift, Jesus Christ. So there's no more shadows, no more types. We have it clearly in Jesus Christ. So as you look ahead to this week, not if, but when you hit a spiritual wall, go back to this passage and read it again. Remind yourself, what, what is the fullness of Christ? And then take confidence and assurance in saying that fullness I have received in Jesus Christ. And then be praying, Lord, who will I meet this week who actually needs to hear this truth? Because you may meet someone whose life is unraveled. And they've hit the wall, but they have nowhere to turn. They don't know who Jesus Christ is. And they know nothing about the fullness of Christ. That then it is incumbent on you to take this truth, which means so much to you, and share it with someone else. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we live in a fallen world. But yet in Christ Jesus, we are more than conquerors. And so I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ here that this passage, these words, would continue to be brought back to our minds as we go through our week. Lord, people who don't know Christ need to hear this but also those who do know Christ need to be reminded 
of the fullness of Christ that has been given to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.